Happy Tuesday, and welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, joined, as always, by my right-hand man, Uncle Jimmy. Have a fantastic show planned for you today. Buck Fitzgerald, the founder of National Playmakers Academy, he's going to join us and help me talk about the Kansas football scandal engulfing former coach Les Miles uh, and some former players who allegedly were dealing drugs while on the team. Wilfred Riley, a professor at Kentucky State University, will join us in the second half of the show. He's got some interesting tweets about things you're not supposed to say in corporate media that we all know are true. But before we do all that, I'm going to get to Stephen A. Smith and the controversy engulfing Smith. Someone needs to tell Stephen A. Smith it's a mistake to bow to the Twitter mob. Never do it. Smith, the $12 million a year ESPN broadcaster, issued an apology yesterday for no good reason. Twitter pretended that Smith offended Asians when he pointed out that baseball star Shohei Otani isn't the ideal marketing face for Major League Baseball because his English is so poor that he speaks through an interpreter. On his ESPN debate show, First Take, Smith told co-host Max Kellerman this. But the fact that you got a foreign player that doesn't speak English, that needs an interpreter, believe it or not, I think contributes to harming the game to some degree when that's your box office appeal. It needs to be somebody like Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, those guys. And unfortunately, at this moment in time, that's not the case. This is not a remotely new or controversial sentiment that Smith just expressed. Smith wasn't disparaging Otani. He wasn't making a factual point about, he was making a factual point about what's undermining the popularity of Major League Baseball in America. Regretfully, I have experience when it comes to disparaging Asian professional athletes. Nearly a decade ago, at the peak of NBA player Jeremy Lin's sanity, Jeremy Lin, we called it Linsanity. I tweeted an inappropriate joke about Lin. I wrote and delivered a sincere apology for disparaging Lin and diminishing an important, an important moment for Asian sports fans. I have zero problem with admitting a mistake and apologizing when I've done something wrong. Problem here is, Smith didn't do anything wrong. Only in these globalist times could someone interpret Smith's comments as harmful. Blue Check Twitter believes everything that comes out of a public figure's mouth must land perfectly at every location on the globe. Blue Check Twitter believes Smith's comments are <laughs> an extension of Donald Trump's America First agenda. That is Smith's crime prioritizing America above other countries and sharing a thought a Trump supporter might have. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, home of the former greatest spectacle in racing, the Indy 500. In the late 1980s and throughout the 1990s, Indy cars lost traction and relevance to NASCAR because American racing fans preferred Dale Earnhardt and Jeff Gordon over Brazilian Emerson Fittipaldi and Dutchman Ari Leondyke. In fact, the argument over foreign dominance began raging in the 1970s in racing. Eventually, American open wheel racing had a civil war. 
a band of revolutionary car owners, seceded from USAC, the main governing body, and formed CART, a rebel rival. The war lasted for nearly 20 years before Indianapolis Motor Speedway president Tony George ended the feud by starting the Indy Racing League. Let me give you a more recent example from the sports world. From 2006 to 2013, Brazilian Anderson Silva held the title of UFC middleweight champion. It's the longest title streak in UFC history. He defended his title 16 straight times. Silva is arguably the greatest mixed martial arts fighter of all times. You know what other fighters and UFC fans complained about during Silva's reign? He spoke through an interpreter most of the time. He preferred to do interviews in Portuguese. Silva isn't nearly as popular as Conor McGregor, Chuck Liddell, or Ronda Rousey. Not speaking English hurts American popularity. I'm sure not speaking Japanese would undermine an American baseball player's popularity in Japan. Stephen A. Smith is being targeted at ESPN. His salary is inflated and problematic. No matter how hard he works, no matter how many shows he fronts, his salary is a problem because it dwarfs Maria Taylor's salary. Right now, ESPN is Wakanda. A lot of people miss the point of the Black Panther movie and fictional Wakanda. T'Challa, T'Challa, the Black Panther, was nothing more than a puppet for the black women of Wakanda. Mm. Watch the movie again. At every turn, the Black Panther sought the advice, counsel, support, and approval of black women. The Black Panther is a celebration of the black matriarchy, period. ESPN is Wakanda. Maria Taylor wants to be the Black Panther. She sees herself as Stephen A's equal. She's not. So Stephen A has to be cut down to Maria's size. Black Twitter, the power source of the black matriarchy, is assisting Maria in her contract push and the devaluation of Smith. Yesterday's Stephen A controversy was a total rig job orchestrated to, to create the impression that Smith is problematic. Smith should have never legitimized it with a written apology. He even let his handlers convince him that his words had some loose connection to a spike in anti-Asian violence. Smith wrote, in this day and age, indubitably, with all the violence being perpetrated against the Asian American community, indubitably, my comments, I'll bet unintentional and loquacious, were clearly insensitive and regrettable. I added a few words there, but you get the point. Smith is from Hollis, Queens, New York. Black bodies have been dropping in Hollis, Queens for 40 years. The violence perpetrated, tolerated, and celebrated within the black community is a nationwide pandemic. No one is apologizing for that. Never apologize to the Twitter mob. Woo! <laughs> now that's a vibe! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Jim. Big bro. This, I know I went big picture here, and I, I hope that 
everybody can understand this. They just think it was a little simple apology. It wasn't just a little simple apology. There's a bigger game being played here, and they're running game on Stephen A. Smith, and they've been running game on black men, and, and, and people are just like, oh, Whitlock, he got a problem with black women. No, I got a problem with the matriarchy and its dominance of black culture. It's why we're loaded in dysfunction, chaos, and all this perpetration of violence against black men is tolerated and celebrated. We're being castrated. And they just did it to Stephen A. Smith. Got this man shucking and driving and, and, and apologizing for some shit that wasn't even wrong. First, first of all... Um let me, can, let me go back to you. Yeah. Talk, talking about the movie, The Black Panther. I know you're a movie buff. <laughs> I, I love The Black Panther. But, but first of all, Black Panther contained Chadwick Boseman, one of the most underrated actors in Hollywood, truly. Oh, you're going total movie geek. Dude, buff. trust me, Chadwick Boseman has put in some work, honestly. Right. And it don't matter if he gets the recognition. Michael B. Jordan played the part of Killmonger. Now, you know, now you, you got to love him. That's little Wallace from The Wire. <laughs> that is Wallace from The Wire. That's why, I mean, you knew he was going to be a star back then. So I love that whole movie. And I love, I, I, let me say You love this. the Black Panther. No, no, no. Let me, let me say this, and I, I'm, I need to say this right now. Black Panther was one of the most, I loved it. It was one of the most beautiful movies I'd ever seen. Truly. Honest to goodness. And it wasn't until I started talking to you that you messed the movie up for me. <laughs> Seriously, it wasn't, and, and this, I'm, I'm dead serious. It wasn't until you, I'm like, hey, man, Black Panther, you know, hey, man, black people in the movie, jam, jam, that movie. Oh, God. There's a deeper point to wait, all wait, 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 this is what I'm getting to. It's when you told me that, and I had to go back and look at it. And then I'm like, oh, my God, this dude got a point. Let me ask you something about that movie, man. Yeah. What happened to all the black men in that movie? Uh, they all died, didn't they? Seriously, what happened to all the black men in the movie? Who didn't have a woman standing and, over them and, telling and them what why, to do? Wait a minute, wait a minute, because I, I'm asking, I, I'm, I hate to say I'm taking up for you, but I'm uh, trying to ask this question. Why did he have to have an army of women fighting the Nephilim, a, 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 a tribe of giants? Where were the black men in that movie that should have been fighting it? I'm just asking. I got another question about Wakanda that I personally didn't like after I started looking at. It. This is just me. It wasn't but one white man in that whole movie. The colonizer. And that's exactly what he was. <laughs> see, see what, what, what the Black Panther actually did was it showed you that even in a perfect world, even if we give y'all y'all's own world, y'all gonna mess it up. Y'all gonna need us. And the one white man and who? The woman came in and fixed it while the, while the black men was doing what? Fighting amongst each other. Killmonger and T'Challa. What done changed? What's different? What lie did they put in there? What fictitious little plot did they just put there? We talking about, ooh, that was an amazing movie. What the hell? That's just life. That's what's happening right now. And that's why we love it. I guess. I didn't love it. I just watched the whole thing. I was like, Man, they think so little of me and us. We're in. Jim, I, I, I'll get, you just made a hell of a point in terms of like the white man and the black woman in partnership while the black men go off and, 
had the Crips and Bloods war. It was a beautiful scenic, <laughs> beautifully. Reds over here, blues over here. Go ahead, I'm sorry. And, and the black woman's doing all the thinking. I mean, seriously, I want people to rewatch the movie and look at what's really going on. T'Challa had to damn near raise his hand to go to the bathroom. And he had to clear it with a black woman. To do, and, and so she just made it more convenient for him to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and so, again, y'all calling this a partnership and like, Asians against a partnership. He, he's, he's a sexist pig. He, he's, you know, he belie- I do believe in the patriarchy because you damn sure believe in the matriarchy. And I'll take the results. I will take the results of the patriarchy over the matriarchy as it relates to the black community. Black women have been in charge of black culture for the last 60 years. Check the results. But, but, now, all due respect, let me say this. Yeah. Because when we talk about the matriarch, I'm going to say, the matriarch was put in place. The, the, The woman had to be there because the black man wasn't there. Okay, it don't matter for what reason he wasn't there. The fact of the matter, he wasn't there. And that, that's why that system had to be in place. So we had to have a big mama. We had to have the, 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 those strong women that stepped up back then for whatever reason. And, and you said 50 years. Okay, I give you 50 years. 50 60. Years, 60, that's a good number. But here's the thing, man. After it came a time where we couldn't, we couldn't claim that no more. You know, it came a time in the 80s, man. Seriously. Hey, man, Bill Cosby came along and showed you in TV that all black people... Don't have to be drug dealers and thugs and hoodlums on television. Bill Cosby came along and showed you a family structure. He came along with another show called A Different World, which was a show about black college kids going to college. Okay, which was a whole different way of looking at it. And and this was the vision that at, at one point we as a people, America was hidden. But then all of a sudden the rap era came in. The crack era came in, the Tony Montana era came in, and we've been going to hell on a banana peel ever since. I can't argue with any of that. I can't argue with any of that. And, and so, Stephen A., if you're watching, or somebody wants to put this in front of Stephen A.'s face, you're being played, bro. That, that apology, you should have never given it. Never. I mean, who, who, who's, the little, who, who's the little white boy that just came on Stephen A. Smith's show <laughs> and just gave his ass 20 lashes, lashes in front of America? What's his name, Joe Pesci? Jeff Passer. He used to work, we worked together in Kansas City. Tell I like something. Jeff. Stephen like A. Jeff. Smith, how you gonna let that boy come on your show? You acting, you ain't got simulacra behind the ears. <laughs> Smelling like your breath smell like warm hot dog water. And you going to let that boy come in there and whoop you on your own show. Is that what America done came to? When you, who they going to bring in here to whoop you? Not Jeff Passer. <laughs> it won't be Jeff Passer. Man, I. And I like Jeff Passer. Jeff, I don't take a fit. But Stephen A., that's your show. And this morning... This little dude comes in and calls you out and, and basically made him say his name was Toby, basically. Damn. <laughs> Damn. What's your name? Made him say his name was Toby. My name Toby. 
Stephen A., bro. I know you don't like me. I know sometimes I'm critical of you. I, I, I know you, you get upset with me. But, Stephen, trust me, I'm actually on your side. Bruh. You are getting played. And you're going to continue to get played until you, that check they cut. And I get it. At that check level, on, I, I get. Come on, Jason. It, would it control me the way it controls him? No. But I think Stephen A. got kids. Family, you know, and not that I don't have family, but I ain't got kids. He's making some different decisions than me. You know, but that right there, I would have drawn the line in the sand. Ain't no way some little baseball writer's going to come in and tell you how inappropriate it is, how ignorant your comments were, and I'm going to sit there and take it and suck it up and apologize again when you ain't said a damn thing wrong. Jason, you know what? There I'm, was nothing. Hold on, Jim. Sorry, there was sorry, nothing sorry, racist sorry. about what Stephen A. said. There was nothing harmful about what, what I said about Jeremy Lin. There you go. There you go. Completely inappropriate. That's what I wanted to say. Right. Harmful. That's why I apologize. You admitted it. And it was a sincere apology. There you go. But just, just to satisfy the crowd and get Twitter up off my back, if that, they will have you dancing to that beat for the rest of your career until they cut you down to size and then they install Maria Taylor or somebody, some other woman from Wakanda to take your spot. Molly, Molly Quarum, she, you know, she ain't from Wakanda, but whatever. They're going to cut you down. I, I've already been through this, and I know you're more valuable than I ever was to ESPN. I get that. But they'll cut you down just the same mm. because of what hangs between your legs. Period. End of story. It's out of style right now in America. And because, it, now I would say this, if you was down with the Alphabet Mafia, Uh-oh. they'd ride with you. Watch out now, Jay. But because you're not called Nassib, and because you're not down with the Alphabet Mafia, and you don't live an alternative lifestyle, they're going to put you up against a tree and do the same damn thing they did to Kunta Kente. What's your choice, bro? What you want to lose, your foot or oh. your member? That's basically what Jeff Passage just, well, for, Jeff Passage just came in and gave you 20 lashes, made you say your name was Toby. Uh, and, and we all, everybody over black Twitter's applauding it. it, it it's, it's, it's just self-destruction. It's self-suicide. It's assisted suicide. What we are black men are going for because we are afraid to stand up to the black woman. And because anytime you stand up to the black woman, oh, you hate the black. No, I don't. But you're not going to undercut my manhood to make me get along with the black woman. You're not going to do it. It's I'm always going to be a man mm. and a patriarch. Mm. So mm. I want you to hit that YouTube.com slash fearless with Jason Whitlock. Uh, I want you to hit that subscribe and like notification buttons. Uh, we're trying to grow our YouTube family. It's going well, but we need more of you to join the fearless army. Uh, and before we get out of here, oh, uh, Buck Fitzgerald is going to join us right around the corner. We're going to talk a little bit more about Stephen A., but also talk about the controversy engulfing the Kansas football program and Les Miles. Before we get out of here, though, I want to tell you about Did you know? That more than 80% of the grass-fed beef sold in the United States is imported from overseas? <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you. It's imported. They may 
try to pretend like it's American-made beef, but it's actually imported. That's why I get my meat from GoodRanchers.com. Their product is 100% American-made. I'm not ashamed of being America first, bro. I'm just not. I don't care that Trump supports it. America first is the way to go, and Good Ranchers Meat is the way to go because it's all-American. When you buy your steak and chicken from Good Ranchers, not only are you getting ethically raised, sustainably sourced meat, you are also supporting American farms. That's what's important. My friends at Good Ranchers have traveled the U.S. and met with the actual farmers that raise the livestock to ensure the product they are sending to your table is the very best. All of their product is individually wrapped, vacuum sealed, and ready to grill. This helps to eliminate waste. Good Ranchers safely delivers American craft beef and better than organic chicken right to your door. You can place a one-time order or better yet, subscribe. Check out the Family Feast Bundle, which includes steak and chicken. If you subscribe, you will get $20 off and free express shipping. Get steakhouse quality for less than $5 per meal. Stop trying to play the grocery store guessing game. Know where your meat comes from with good ranchers and support American farmers. Jim, you had some good ranchers this weekend. It was actually delicious. I actually threw some of those steaks on the grill, and I have to say, would have made Kansas City proud. Phenomenal. I'm having some tonight, actually. You know, I do very little cooking, but I'm having some tonight based off your recommendations. You told me how much you and your boys enjoyed it. I can't wait. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash fearless to get $20 off and free express shipping. That's GoodRanchers.com slash fearless. Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. All right, uh, we'll continue the conversation about Stephen A. Smith. We're joined by a friend of the show, Buck Fitzgerald, former University of Tennessee football player, the founder of the National Playmakers Academy. They deal with some of the best high school football and basketball players in this country and around the country, in this area and around the country. Buck, welcome back to the show. Uh, I want to start, Buck's here to talk mainly about What's going on with Les Miles, who was the head coach at Kansas, and there's allegations about players dealing drugs at Kansas, football, Bucks, an expert on the whole college football world, and I think Les Miles was probably a coach in the SEC, maybe when you were around? Or at, I think right after I... Right, okay. Uh, but I want to start by talking about the conversation Uncle Jimmy and I were just having about Stephen A. Smith... And my and my analogy, I made an analogy to the movie Black Panther, and and I want start off kind of on a light note. Did you enjoy the movie The Black Panther? And what do you think about my take that it actually was just a celebration of the matriarchy? I enjoyed the movie. I I thought that your um, comparison was interesting, and I cannot say that you're wrong. In fact, you're probably right. Um, you know, looking at kind of the rise of Black Lives Matter and, and like you said, the matriarch and kind of the, the Black Lives Matter stance against the strong father in the, in, in the black family and household. And then you kind of look at the plight of the black community in this short kind of period of time, the last two years, 
in, er in every urban area, the murder rate has skyrocketed. So you see the rise of Black Lives Matter and the strong woman and, and kind of let's get the man out and the, and, the, and, the, and the support for the homosexuality uh, portion of our, of our culture, which is great. However, you know, there is definitely uh, a, a, a concerted effort to remove the black man from the family. And I think that there's been an acute rise in, in, in murders and crime because of it. Violence. People don't know when you have no father in the home and in the community and when when the black man has been so devalued in our culture, I think it causes young boys to not know how to properly channel their aggressive energy. I certainly had a lot of aggressive energy as a child. And if it wasn't for participation in sports and coaches and the role of my parents, mother and father in trying to help me properly channel, channel that energy, I think I would have been a different person uh, later in life. And because it took, I'm just saying, I was, I was a bad kid and it took a lot of work to get me channeled and functioning the right, uh, going the right direction. And I don't think it would have happened as hard as my mother tried, my brother and the stuff. Without my dad being a very strong, stubborn, I mean, if y'all think I'm stubborn, uh, <laughs> you should meet my father, or <laughs> who's passed away. But I, I, yeah, I, I just, I look at our culture and we're so accepting of this matriarchal culture we have where the black woman has final say-so on everything, I, just, I think it's been a detriment for us if we just want to speak honestly, and I don't mean that as a slap at black women, but the results speak for themselves. Well, you, you have a great point, and, and I, had a strong, I have a strong father, uh, the strongest man I know, and uh, luckily he was my father and father to many uh, young black men because they didn't have fathers in our community, but... As a young man, I was very emotional, very kind of, uh, you know, I acted out, especially in, in sports and in competition. I didn't know how to channel that. And I had a strong father that would take me home and in different ways teach me that's not acceptable. Had he not been there, I would have had a mother or a grandmother, which God bless them and thank and I'm thankful for him. But I would have learned how to handle things the way that a woman does because that's all that they can teach me how to do. And I would mimic and watch them in day-to-day -day life handle adversity and stress, and they will handle it the way that their nature tells them to, and I would mimic that. And I would go through life the way that a lot of young, men, young black men do, and they emulate what they see from a woman and how they handle stressful situations. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's not just like men. All right. But, you know, we're asked to stand up and operate as a man, lead as a man. And if we've only had uh, an example from those that are not men, uh, females, then it's some on some level, we will emulate that on some level. We will operate and react the way a woman does. And, and I want to piggyback off that, but then I want to transition into the Les Miles, Kansas story. And, and just just to be clear, uh, but, uh, I, th I have more freedom uh, than Buck. 
Fuck's married. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck uh, has other jobs where he interferes. I'm, I'm not married, and I just don't give a damn. Women tend to be a bit more emotional than men. And then when you tap, when, when men start tapping into their emotions and it mixes with a physical aggression that's within us as men, it explodes into the black-on-black violence that we see in Chicago, Baltimore, New York, L.A., Nashville. My mother just texted me this morning in Indianapolis. In the past 24 hours, 10 shootings, 3 deaths in Indianapolis. Last week, and my mother lives in a nice area. We got a nice condo, but two, three blocks from her. A black man kills another black man at the gas station that I go to every time I go to visit my mother. Indianapolis exploding in violence. And so as black people, we have a Molotov cocktail of emotion and unchanneled, unfocused, undisciplined aggression. And it's blowing up and exploding. And the only solution to that is putting the black man back in his family back at the head of his family, as the Bible says, and I know, I know that pisses off a lot of the atheist secular community, but all I can do is go with what the way I was raised, back at the head of his family. That's the only solution. Black Lives Matter is not going to fix it. Joe Biden's not going to fix it. Kamala Harris is not going to fix it. We as black men and black women are going to have to Come to an understanding. This doesn't work without us together and without the black man as the head of the family. I look at a movie like Black Panther and the subtle messaging of it is like, now y'all a different group than everybody else on the planet. The black, the woman actually should lead y'all's family and the handful of you black men that actually amount to anything you all should be obedient to the black woman despite whatever level of success you've had. Look at T'Challa. He didn't go to the bathroom. He wouldn't wipe his ass unless his mother told her Charmin or uh, I don't know what another brand. <laughs> yeah, what brand of toilet paper to wipe his ass with. That's the message of the Black Panther. I want to move on to a story making the news. It was reported in the Kansas City Star. Les Miles the former head football coach at the University of Kansas for a brief time uh, had a lot of controversial things happen at, at Kansas. It eventually, no, it happened actually at LSU that cost him his job at Kansas very quickly. But since he left Kansas, the Kansas City Star comes out with a report that <clears throat> there was a football player who felt like he was harassed by four teammates who were dealing drugs on campus and who threatened this teammate with violence because this teammate had allegedly squealed to the coaching staff or people within the athletic department about them dealing drugs. And that Kansas, according to the Kansas City Star, paid this guy $50,000 to go back home to West Virginia. And I read the story, Buck, and, and, and by the way, the football player that went back to uh, West Virginia was white. The four players that lived just beneath him in an apartment in Lawrence, Kansas, uh, were black. 
And so there's that element of the story, the black, white racial dynamic. Uh, but I read the story and my first reaction was, man, we had three guys on my team at Ball State in the 80s that were marijuana dealers across campus. I'm not going to name them. I will name one of them, though, because he went on to become a drug kingpin in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And he was only on the football team for a year or two. He was a scholarship, promising left tackle, but Jovan Harvey wanted to deal dope. And he went home to Fort Wayne and actually became a kingpin. And the reason why I mention him is because there were news stories written about him when a drug cartel uh, <laughs> from South America killed him in Fort Wayne. This probably happened six to 10 years ago. Uh, but he was, they came up to Fort Wayne and, and took Jovan out. Uh, but I, I say all that to say that as a player, and if I name the other two guys, I got along with all of them. And, you know, they dealt marijuana and no one, it didn't seem to be a big deal, but this does go on on college teams. Uh, and I would imagine, and look, when I'm in college, this is the 1980s. Now in 2020, when we've celebrated the drug dealer as, you know, second only to George Floyd, I guess, in status, the drug user has a little bit more status than the drug dealer, I guess, in our hierarchy. If George Floyd, then I guess Jay-Z or Avon Barksdale would be number two if we went the fictional route. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big Avon fan, by the way. <laughs> come on, man. Avon is the guy. Yeah. You're going to mix Avon and Jay Z. There's no comparison. Anyway. Avon was the guy. I just, Avon's the guy. You read the story. You're still heavily involved with athletes across the country playing college football. How did the story strike you? Were you surprised? I was surprised at how weak Les Miles is or was in the story, I mean, he was like kind of a feeble old man. I mean, listen, boys will be boys, and there's going to be that element to every team. But, I mean, after two or three incidents, you got to kind of tell them to pipe down a little bit. If you're going to allow them, they had to be hell of players. If they can sell dope and, 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 and harass people and still continue to play. So that's the thing that kind of, you know, that, that stuck out. The other thing is how bad was Kansas when they only offered him $50,000? <laughs> Go away. <laughs> that's how you become a 1-12 in 12 program. So, but, you know, you're right. There is always a drug element, especially now that drugs, marijuana, has almost taken uh, the place of drinking. When I was in college, we drank, all right? Now... Guys drink very little and all of them smoke. So, you know, it's not as uh, criminalized or demonized as it, as it used to be. And the face of the drug dealer has changed a little bit. You'll have a nerd on campus that's a drug dealer or, you know, whomever. So it doesn't have to be the big bad thug anymore that sells weed. Um, but I am surprised by the lawlessness of the entire store and the guys involved. If I'm going to be doing something that's highly illegal, I'm not going to be running around kind of beating people up and drawing attention from the authorities. So the whole thing just really sounds just totally out of control and wild, which, you know, kind of leads me to say Kansas is going to be Kansas. You know, and, and, and I'm not so in college. 
I smoked marijuana and drank. I drank more than I smoked marijuana, but definitely did both. And I, I, so I'm not somebody that's uptight with a pole up my rear end. I, I'm just, and so the kid from West Virginia that snitched, and, and I'm putting a negative connotation on it, I'm calling it snitching, and, but that's how it comes off to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm more of a law and order guy and rules are rules and blah, blah, but I couldn't see myself in that situation telling on my teammates, I would let law enforcement catch up with these guys before I would be the person. And and again, I would want the team to do well and I would want to set the right tone or or, or whatever for everybody. But I think I would have minded my own business, particularly as it relates to marijuana and where we're, and I'm not even in the same position as with the rest of America that just sees marijuana as harmless. But that is where we're at right now. And so I would have left it alone. Yeah, he seems, he comes across as a goody two-shoes. That's very bizarre that he would, you know, give effort to go and tell on these guys why. You know, I, I don't get that. You know, again, if they ran afoul of the law, then they will be punished. But... I don't see many kids saying, hey, I'm going to be Barney Fife and I'm going to go tell on these guys and, and, and they're going to get justice. So, you know, a lot of that he kind of brought on, on himself. Um, and, and that may be why kind of uh, Les Miles and some of the coaching staff had a hands-off approach and they even kind of said, hey, we'll handle it on the field, you know, in Oklahoma drill or whatnot. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that comes – you don't ingratiate yourself to anybody – if you do that, all right, because, you know, again, it's not his place as far as the team culture. That's not your place to be the snitch. And, you know, the locker room is just like any other walk of life. No one really wants to be around or there's not much value to a snitch, especially in a football locker room. I'm going to, this just made me think of another story. And this is about one of my best friends from college. I've told this story before, not going to use his name, but I've told this story before on television and I've written about it. Uh, he was one of our best players, one of my best friends. We're in Muncie in the mid-1980s. Uh, some townies, hillbillies, drove past us on a Friday or Saturday night. We're, I think, headed to some party or whatever, and... They drove past us in our car and looked over, hit us with the N-word. We two big, swolled-up football players. We pull off to the road, and we like, get out of the car. Let's do it. <laughs> and I'm standing out there like, yeah, come on, blah, 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 blah. My boy has popped the trunk of his car. You know that sound. <laughs> <laughs> I look over. <laughs> He's holding a Uzi. Oh, I had never seen a Uzi a day in my life. <laughs> I go, dog, what you? Just got real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I started hauling ass. This is one of my best, but I just said, uh, wait, Uzi. he was there to help you. Right? <laughs> the, the Uzi was for them. Why you start running? <laughs> This was too deep for me. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey you, you can't regulate your reaction when you see the Uzi. 
<laughs> it's too deep. I'm from Indianapolis. <laughs> the Uzi was just too much for me. I just, I go home. I understand. I tell the story to say this, and 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 I, I'm saying this to the young man from West Virginia or anybody else. You'd be surprised what life and what God can do to a person. Mm. The same guy that was standing next to me with an Uzi is one of the best human beings I know. What God, a wife, kids, a good church, and just evolution did to this dude. Grace. Yes. And so it was not hauled ass, but it never crossed my mind to tell anybody about the, yeah. about what happened to Snitch and this guy, blah, blah, blah. I, I just, and me and the guy stayed friends all through college, but it's just like, I didn't ride in his car anymore. <laughs> I, I didn't know he rolled like that. But I'm just telling you, this dude is incredible, an incredible father, an incredible person. Good, you know, good to my mother. His daddy and my mother, they flirt with each other. I mean, this is, this, is, this is one of my guys, and I've seen, and I've seen myself because I was an idiot in college, and, and I was a guy that was just like with this natural strength. I didn't have to work out real hard to be strong. And, blah, blah. and so in my life, I, I could tell just another story. Like I used to get in fights and, and was a bully, and then I just changed on a dime. And I haven't, I got in a fight or I beat up, I didn't get in a fight. I beat up a kid in 1989. I just wrote about this in a column. I've never fought since because it was the dumbest thing I ever did. And when I sobered up the next day, I was so embarrassed and ashamed of myself. And, and I swore that night, I was like, oh, fighting is over. Yeah. And so as dumb as people may look at 18, and I'm not trying to excuse these kids at Kansas, but people can look incredibly stupid and irresponsible at 18, 19, 20 years old, and then life will get a hold of them, and, and they can just end up in a better place. So I, I guess that would be my advice to the kid, and I'm not, and if any college football players or college athletes are watching this, just, it would ha- maybe there's more to the story. Maybe they were doing more than selling marijuana, but still, though. I mean, I don't, I don't know what they could do other than have a stack of bodies in their closet for to make yeah. a guy go to the the coaches and say, "Hey, you know, I'm the snitch," and, and they're doing X, Y, and Z. I, I, I just that's just that's just very bizarre. It has to be more to the story. Well, I, I'll tell you what the more to the story could be, Buck. And, and again, you're dealing with young athletes, and I'm wondering how much of this nationwide racial tension that's just going on in America is starting to split up black and white athletes. Because, again, this was a white kid and a black kid. I wonder what the racial dynamics are in these locker rooms today because of the Black Lives Matter, because social media has taught us to interpret everything as a racial deal. It's like sometimes a white teammate will do something to you and we we'll oh, that's racism. And it might just be, no, that guy's an asshole. Right. And right. some of the things I've done to people, it's like, it ain't because, oh, I didn't like you because you white 
blah, blah. I'm just an, I was just an asshole at that time. Right. So uh, what are you seeing from kids in terms of does sports bring them together the way it did during your era and my era? Yeah, I, I think it still does, and it's always going to kind of be uh, – the locker room is always going to have more racial harmony than the rest of society. With that said, I still think that there is a um, – there's, there's more of a tension there, a more of a racial tension. And uh, with young people, I always say young people always want to find, most of the times, want to find an excuse for something, all right? And so the racial piece has become an excuse or a viable excuse for both black and white athletes, all right? So the black athlete, something doesn't go right, a very easy, um, you know, reason for something, all right, is the racial racial deal. Also, on the other side, you know, a, a, a white kid may feel, hey, you know, this guy's getting extra, extra grace or, you know, extra because you guys are afraid to come down on him because of the racial. And you see that growing kind of among the white community. All right, hey, you know, all right, we've taken our whooping enough. Now, you know, these guys are getting too much leeway because you guys are afraid to come down on them because of the racial issue. You're scared to be called a racist. And so you got both sides kind of throwing rocks and they're both moving towards the extremes. All right. But that's just, a, you know, just an example of what's going on in society as well. Just a microcosm. So. Uncle Jimmy, you got anything or. Yeah, I do. We let Buck go. Yeah, I do. Uh, um, I thought I thought that that was one of the biggest problems that we had is. Black people is that we don't tell when something's going on. So you're, you're suggesting? I'm saying if we, I thought we said if we see something wrong, we're supposed to tell it. I thought that's, that's, I thought that as a law enforcement officer, black people piss me the hell off when we see something going on and we want to sit up and act like we don't know what's going on. If they was on that campus doing drugs, you know, somebody need to snitch them out. Are you there to play football or deal drugs? Didn't we have somebody 10 years ago get killed in Baylor? Some players, one player got killed. They was doing that. So we need to, I mean, come on. I mean, y'all can say what y'all want to to me. Mm-mm. If you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. It ain't no in the middle. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll interject something to that. Okay. The, the self-policing works when there is a strong part of that environment that can police. When I was at Tennessee, we had things going on. We had some fools, and I was one of them. However, we had in hierarchy, the older guys would police and keep things in the road, all right? And so it didn't ever escalate to where you'd go tell the coach because we tell Al Wilson, for example. Right, right. right? And so a guy like me was more afraid of Al Wilson than I was any coach. So even so when you when you when you correlate that to the streets, all right, yeah, that that may work when there's an element of the streets that's self-policing the neighborhood. All right. If a guy's doing something, all right, we're gonna handle that before the before the authorities do. All right, because we're self-policing our community. The problem is now we have no leadership. All right. Even on the street level. There is no leadership. There is no honor amongst thieves anymore. All right. So, 
you have now is just people are snitching because they're weak. People are telling the authorities because they're weak. All right. I did the crime. All right. Now I'm jammed up. So I'm going to tell on Jason to get a lighter sentence. Not because I have any honor. I'm telling to get my my ass out of jail or out of prison or a lighter sentence. So it's all about the lack of character right now. All right. I'm not telling because I want what's best for the community. And I don't think this white dude was telling because he wants what's best for the team. He was probably trying to get a carrot, trying to stay on scholarship, trying to brown nose, just like someone on a street level is telling the authorities so and so has the keys. Well, he's doing it because he's jammed up. I promise you he's not volunteering information and everything is right in, in his life. I promise you that that never happens. So are we saying that we would feel different if the guy that turned him in was black? No. OK, see, because to me. My thought, honest to goodness, man, and I think we as a people have to do this, man. We talking about honor amongst thieves. We got to stop being thieves. How about some honor amongst men? You know, I mean, if we here going, if we, if you a kid, you going to school to play football, I damn it, play football. You want to be a drug dealer? Take your ass on the street and be a drug dealer. I damn it, if you out here doing wrong, we need more people to say you're doing wrong. Not, no, see, one minute we want to play the, oh, well, we the streets. And then one minute we want to say, no, you wrong. I get that, your- that needs to come from leadership, though. That, need to come, that needs to come from that senior or junior leader, all right? Because it's, it's going to be more effective coming from him. I'm not saying that you should allow wrongdoing, all right? But if you feel strong enough about it, the best course of action isn't to go to the coach because that's going to further tear the team apart. The best course of action is go to the leadership and let them deal with it how they see fit. Okay. You, you just took me to a, another point, an example uh, that we went through that on my Ball State football team. Uh, I'm just going to speak factually. I'm not... I don't think there's a racial component to this, but I'm, I'm just going to speak factually. I can remember the white guys running off our quarterback. The white guys on the team ran off our quarterback because he was a pothead. And they thought, you know, that was affecting his play on the, team, on, on the field. And that was something the white dudes did. The black dudes, we didn't have nothing to do with it. We just, we just heard the aftermath of the story. How come they ran so-and-so off the team? And then we started hearing stories about what the white leadership did. They didn't like to do, thought he was a pothead, ran him up off the team. I think the other point that uh, uh, Buck is making, and he made it earlier, he kind of moved away from it here in this part of it, but Les Miles was weak in this situation. Mm-hmm. He's put in the loop. Oklahoma drills isn't going to settle this. Bringing these guys in and like, hey, man, what are y'all doing? And, hey, you're on a football scholarship and you have a choice here. Exactly. Play this football, but the whole dr- the, the drug thing is too dangerous. Who, who knows who you're going to cross? And lo- I used to, I live right, yeah, obviously, you know, I lived outside of Lawrence, Kansas in Overland Park, Kansas. And so, but you never know what element you're going to bring to your apartment they could get upset with you because you're right. While we all were talking, I was looking up the Baylor scandal with Patrick Dennehy, I think, who was murdered by uh, Keith Dotson, I think was the other kid's name. 
at Baylor, and this is back in like 2000 or whatever, uh, Carlton Donston was the guy that I think was, one of them was the murderer, one of them was the victim. Uh, but drugs and drug use and alcohol use and marijuana use were at the heart of that situation spinning out of control. Uh, so you've both made interesting points, but let me ask you this, Jim, and then we gotta go. Based on your wrong is wrong, right is right, Right is right, wrong is wrong, and it ain't no in the middle. Yeah. What was I supposed to do with my friend standing there with a newsie? Was I supposed, the next day should I have gone and told somebody? Maybe. Because who, who, knows, who knows what would have happened after that? Did you feel in your heart like you needed to? No, I felt like in my heart I needed to run my ass home. <laughs> and that was the, wait, wait a minute. I mean, and that was the first thing you did. But to me, man, I mean, honestly, just think, think of what you're yeah. saying. You're saying, Jim, he riding. Should I have told somebody? You should have at least told your mama. Yes, you should have told somebody. Yes. I mean, see what I mean? Then we wonder. You know, we wonder how does this happen in our neighborhoods? Well, I, I will say this. There is a theory that, like, if I had told. You'd have been a snitch. Well, would have been a snitch for one, but I may have also, the guy may not, carrying that gun could have led him to a problem the next week that boo out of control, he's locked up or he kills someone or someone kills him. Get it? By the grace of God, nothing happened and he evolved into a person. Because we talk about this all the time and he's just like, and it's one of the reasons why he's so faithful because he just like, he knows the grace, mercy, and just how dumb he was and we were at that time. And just thank God. And that's why I, I look at a lot of guys that do stupid things when they're young. And I go, oh, that could have been me. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, that could have been me. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, Buck, thanks for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right, don't forget to go to YouTube.com slash Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe and notification button. All right, when we come back, we're going to go out to Illinois, I believe, and talk to Wilfred Riley. He's put out some very interesting tweets about things everyone knows are factual, but we're not supposed to talk about all that more. It's my obligation to hate discrimination, raising up your hands for freedom. Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. All right, we got some more great stuff. Right ahead, Wilfred Riley, a professor at Kentucky State and one of my newest finds on Twitter. He's going to join us. I think Wilfred's in Illinois, according to his Twitter bio, but we'll find out. Let's roll out to Wilfred's home studio. Uh, Wilfred has uh, tweeted out, this was a couple days ago, an interesting phenomenon today is that there exists a whole genre of plain truths which everyone across all races, et cetera, would agree to be, would agree to in a barbershop or on a basketball court or on a golf course, but which almost cannot be mentioned in quote unquote polite discourse. Will, uh, welcome to the show. Before we get to that, I want to ask you a couple of background questions just for my own edification. I recently discovered you over Twitter and find the stuff you tweet out fascinating. And so I just want to know a little bit more about you. Uh, where'd you come from? How old are you? Where'd you, where'd you go to college? Any of that? 
Yeah, so I'm from uh, Chicago. I was born in the city itself uh, for academic and athletic reasons. I moved out to nearby Aurora when I was a young man, a little before high school. But I mean, I still have property up there. So I'm, I'm from northern Illinois. And I went to school pretty much in that same region of the Midwest. I mean, I went to undergrad school at Southern Illinois University uh, Law School at the University of Illinois. And I ended up a few hundred miles basically south. So I teach at Kentucky State which is a historically black college, but in Appalachia. So I thought there might be a chance to, to do some good there, to, to help kids there. But that's, that's pretty much the background for me. Um, I'm in Kentucky right now, actually. So I have the, the house back home in Chicago, but I'm in Frankfurt. I mean, this is, this is a back room in my house, actually, that I'm, I'm home studioing in. I also, I have, also have an office on campus I'll film in. All right, so I'm familiar with Kentucky State. Uh, two of my best friends in life, like family members, were basketball stars at Kentucky State. Freddie and Charleston Bowles, I'm sure they're still. Freddie was, I think, when he left, maybe had been Kentucky State's all-time leading scorer. These guys would have played there in the 80s, a little bit older than you, I, I would assume. Uh, I'm, familiar with, I'm also familiar with Southern Illinois. I had a friend that played college football there. When did you go to Southern Illinois? And you said you were an, an athlete. Did you play sports in college? Uh, not in college. The one sport I might have been good enough to do at something like the D2 level is middle distance running. But as you know, college athletics is not necessarily the dream that it's presented as. I mean, that's going to be your job. I mean, you're going to be out there for 40 or 50 hours a week. So I was lucky enough to get an academic scholarship uh, within that Illinois, Southern Illinois system. So I, I was basically a student while I was in college. And yeah, Kentucky State, by the way, they're they're famous as a small school NAIA uh, hoops powerhouse, at least back in the day, still now, the games against center and so on. So I mean, when we play ball just in sort of men's gym, I mean, some of those guys like Coach Graham, who ended up playing for the Bulls from Kentucky State, I mean, they still work at Kentucky State or did until recently. So yeah, there's a there's a solid small school athletics program there, and the students are definitely very involved. We actually have a student section called the Trap House. I don't know if the administrators knew exactly what that meant when they put it together, but it's <laughs> there's a there's definitely a student presence at, at pretty much every event. It, that tradition is very much ongoing there. All right, so I hope this question isn't rude, but I, I just I want to ask, and I because I want to know because I've been following your work. What's your racial ethnic makeup? Oh, no, it's not not rude. I mean, I'm uh, basically I'm black and white, but I mean, you could go into more detail than that. I mean, I'm my Caucasian family side is from Britain and Ireland. I mean, Celtic by background. I'm also part Indian, uh, Plains Indian, apparently. Whenever I've taken one of those DNA tests and it was just pretty much what you'd think from looking at me like this guy's mostly black and white. But, you know. 10 plus percent Indian. So that, it, like many Americans, I have a pretty diverse background. But I mean, I think in order of oppression, most people would usually describe me as a black guy. Although really, I guess the natives <laughs> would have more of a claim there. You know? Yes, they would. Yes, they would. And then finally, what do you teach at Kentucky State? Well, I'm one of our political science professors, along with a guy named Emmanuel Amadife, who's a, who's a vet in that discipline. But I mean, so I we split up our politics classes and I mostly teach uh, American constitutional law, intro to politics, um, political statistics, that kind of thing. So I, I teach political science 
And I mean, there's a pretty good amount of leeway as a professor during the summer, for example, to write. So as you know, I also wrote uh, the book Hate Crime Hoax, the book Taboo. But my, my teaching itself is in politics almost exclusively. I also teach our cybersecurity class, actually. I'm pretty familiar with computers and have some, you know, baseline quasi hacking skills. So I, I run that class every couple of semesters. All right. Well, you're one of the most interesting people I've found on Twitter. I would suggest everybody hunt you down. You tweet out some very interesting things. I want to go through your latest thread that caught my attention and made me reach out. I just I just want to run the things you you tweeted by you and then ask you to expound on them. And so it's playing off this. You know, there's so many things everybody agrees on, but you can't talk about in public spaces. And so the first one is, while police brutality is very bad, something like the 90% majority of people shot by cops are violent repeat felons, usually struggling with the officer. We can't talk about this. Why? Yeah, I absolutely stand by that. I mean, to some extent, you can understand why it's considered rude to talk about it. People could accuse you of blaming the victim or something. But this actually came out of what I was just describing. Like, I'm a man. I'm an adult male. I'm very comfortable with that. And I spend a fair amount of time in what are actually these days diverse environments on a basketball court. I'm trying to pick up my golf game. You know, this will be a diverse group, white, African-American, sometimes Hispanic men, women often included. And everyone just agrees on some of these things, like what happened in the Jacob Blake case. But because of the dominance of our media or even of a zone like Twitter by a certain kind of upper middle class, highly critical person, a lot of these truths don't really get explored. So yeah, the police thing, I, I mentioned that someone challenged me to say true things that were sort of mildly controversial online. I went through a list of about 15 of them. But the police thing, yeah, if you look at most of these cases, they're less than 20 unarmed black men and less than 100 unarmed men of every background killed annually by police, the 90% majority of what's less than 1,000 fatal police shootings are, for the Jacob Blake case is a good example, although that wasn't fatal. I mean, you had an accused rapist, bluntly, go back to the house of the victim, got into a struggle with her, got into a struggle with the police, was reaching for apparently a pretty good-sized knife, and he got shot. And in fact, it was a well-aimed, non-fatal shooting. So that is what a lot of these look like. It's not brothers, or for that matter, poor whites or whatever, being murdered in the street. But for whatever reason, there's a taboo around bringing this up. I'm going to tell you the, the thing you can also do as it relates to police shootings. You can assert some of the most bizarre stuff in the world as it relates to police shooting and people in public spaces, on TV, in corporate media, and people will just nod their head as if you've said nothing crazy. I'm going to give you an example. I once saw a white broadcasting public figure who is married to a black woman. I saw him sit on TV and say that he and his wife and this, his wife had a previous child who is full black and uh, that was 18 years old. He said that he and his wife had decided because of police brutality and because of these shootings that they weren't going to allow their son to drive anymore. It was just too dangerous. And <laughs> I heard this and they were living in Houston, Texas at the time. Right. And I heard this and I said, well, hold on. If this small number of police can kill black men will stop you from 
letting your child drive, are you letting this 18-year-old boy associate with other black boys his age? Because those shootings go on on a nightly basis. There's thousands of them across the country. But the, the guy said it. People nodded their heads and acted like nothing crazy had been said. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's a deep level of non-understanding of kind of risk analysis around this kind of thing. A different topic, but I think you saw this with COVID as well for many healthy young people. I think you see this. I think you see this with driving in terms of the perception that a 17-year-old boy behind the wheel is somehow less dangerous than that guy interacting with the police. But yeah, in reality, a ton of things that you would do as a young black man, from hanging out with your black buddies to hang out with working class white or Hispanic buddies to dating and hooking up with women all of drinking liquor, all of those things are empirically far, far more dangerous than you. Most of the high school and college experience is far, far more dangerous for you than getting stopped by the police because you have a headlight out. So that's actually one of the things that I research and write about, like this level of irrational fear. The planes are gonna crash on the right, illegal immigrants are gonna kill our family members, young children are gonna be kidnapped. That's very pervasive in American society. And now we're doing this in the black community and none of it is founded in fact. It's just irrational, nonsensical fear. Everyone's terrified. And in reality, all these middle class adults that you see on television are going to live to be 90. So I I don't get it, but it it is there. It needs to be called out from time to time. (laughs) All right. Your next tweet was males and females are different in obvious ways, easily, easily measurable ways. Some quite enjoyable. Expound, please. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, keeping it PG, obviously, respect to television program. But yeah, I don't think it's generally very hard to tell. You don't have to. (laughs) No, no. But it's not very hard to tell a male, let's say, from a female. Like, we can debate the idea of gender. Gender is essentially the idea that you can present the stereotypes of a sex different from your own, and you should get some baseline respect, like not being mocked for wearing non-typical clothing or something like that. And whatever my personal opinions, I don't really have too much of an issue with that. But we're now seeing this spread into the idea that sex itself is this hard to define, questionable thing. Uh, not really. Like, in, in a sentence, the key question for the the activist part of the trans movement isn't, Are there some intersex people that we absolutely have to treat politely? Yeah, sure, that's true. The key question is, if I am a biological male, where I have an XY chromosomal order, you know, a reproductive system designed to produce small rather than large gametes to be a complete womp, a penis, can I just say that I am a female and do something like compete in combat sports against women? And I, I frankly find that idea pretty silly. Like, we can discuss the effects of surgery or something, but it's bizarre that this is what we've chosen to challenge as a society, that there are major spreads in women's magazines asking whether women exist. They do. It's a good thing. (laughs) Thankfully, they do. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, All right, this next one is, is very important to this show and the brand of this show. Dads matter a lot. One of the biggest predictors of virtually every negative outcome in life, particularly for girls slash women, is not having a present in home, preferably married father. Every this to me gets at virtually everything that we and I know you can take it whatever direction you want. But me, I take it virtually every 
everything that we attribute to white supremacy, I think goes back, for black people, goes back to uh, 85, 80% of our kids growing up in single parent homes without their dads. I think that is more detrimental to black people than white supremacy, but you, you can take it whatever direction you want. Well, yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. There's actually a line from, I believe, Immortal Technique. Um, someone did your mother like that. That's why you're fatherless. Worse than racism and bad cops. That's what the problem is. I think, again, the average working class black man listening to hip hop or jazz, trying to do the right thing to, with his girl, understands this intuitively. Of course, it's better to have two parents and two incomes than one. So... What I did with that tweet, I actually, because I knew people, including feminist friends of mine, love them, who are single moms, who are going to argue intensely, I actually just linked the center-right but totally respected National Center for Fathering. So you see the stats right there. It's not debatable. You're six times more likely to go to jail if you don't have a dad in the house. You know, pregnancies before wedlock for daughters, so on down the line. Um, I, I do think, and obviously we both feel that racism exists, but I do think two things can be true at once. When we talk about, for example, the audit studies of racial bias, you can absolutely say racism as a black man might have a 5% impact on what you earn. That's unacceptable. But the impact of fatherlessness, which cuts a family's income in half, so on, just empirically is bigger than that. And this phenomenon with fatherlessness is a relatively recent thing. And the one thing I'd hit back on is the idea that it's a black problem. I pulled up these stats from my next book. The black out of wedlock rate, what was traditionally always called the illegitimacy rate, is 72% right now. But the white rate is about to hit 40%. Uh, for Hispanics and natives, it's 66%. The only Polynesians, I mean, the only group that's not having a problem with this is East Asian Americans. So overall, as a country, about half of our kids aren't going to be raised by a dad in the next generation. And I mean, if you want to talk about crime or promiscuity or something like that, I mean, we're seeing those things rise again for the first time in 20 years. And this is at least one of the factors that are obviously involved there. So again, something any fool can recognize, but it's very controversial to say. The immediate response, especially if you're a black man, is why are you attacking single moms? I'm not, but it's a good thing to have a dad around. It's just obvious. Wilfred is very smart, loving this. All right, your next tweet. Many, most poor neighborhoods will be food deserts until ec epidemic crime decreases. No one wants to build a shiny new store only to have it burnt down and urban enterprise tracks the crime rate. Yeah, I mean, that that again is just a famous quote, comes from a brother, a black man, I believe that was Orlando Patterson, although it might have been Walter Williams, I don't want to mislabel anyone's views. But uh, again, when people, and this again, these aren't entirely black problems. Like I live in Appalachia, and you'll go through entire towns that have a crime problem, that have an opiates problem. The only place to get fresh food is the Dollar General. In Kentucky and Tennessee, there's so many food deserts, they actually have Dollar General Market where there's some tomatoes on sale next to you know, the condoms and Tylenol and so on. But I mean, the reality is that in both quote unquote hillbilly regions of the country, although I dislike that term, and inner city quote unquote hood areas, the reason there aren't a lot of businesses isn't just sort of targeted racism. I mean, there are two different races occupy those areas. The reason is that there's epidemic crime. So like in Baltimore, one of the most ironic ignored images of our era, was that CVS decided to build one of those shiny new flagship stores in a working class black area. The uh, Freddie Gray riots happened. It's sometimes hard to tell them, keep them apart. And 
the store was burnt to the ground. Like that's the store that you saw looted on TV. So there's a very good reason merchants don't tend to build most of their businesses in the ghetto. This, by the way, is also the reason prices are higher in the hood or in El Barrio or in the Appalachian Mountains. It's not that, you know, the canny immigrants are gouging people. It's that it costs a lot to cover the security guy by the door. It costs a lot to cover the cost of theft. Merchants in those areas actually make less money. So they tend to be the bravest people. I mean, new immigrants from Asia or the islands and so on. And that itself can cause conflict between people, customers, so on. But at the root of all that is crime. If you got rid of crime and what are otherwise stable, lower middle income, black or southern neighborhoods, you'd have businesses all over the place. But we just saw a year of rioting, and that's a big reason they're not there. Next, the left-wing riots, which raged through all of 2020, were far larger in scope than January 6th, killed a lot, a hell of a lot more people, 25 plus, did two billion in damages and were intentionally minimized by dishonest media no one trusts anymore. So that one that one got the most backlash. And I can see why, because the Capitol is a unique sacred space and all that. But when you see these mainstream publications talking about the horrors of rioting in Charlottesville or on 1-6, and I, I have no problem condemning either of those terrible riots, but you do have to wonder if they've been wearing horse blinders for the past year and a half. I mean, since uh, Mr. Floyd was killed in that encounter with the police, there have been something like 60 major urban riots that have devastated entire cities. I mean, in Minneapolis, a historic occupied police precinct, the old third, was burned down with the police officers initially in it, although, thank God, they kicked out a back door and got away. I mean, in Seattle, you had a literal city-state set up of CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone or Occupied Zone. Um, six or seven young black men were shot and I believe killed there fighting sort of the diverse guards on the boundary. I mean, in Portland, they attacked another famous old courthouse for 100 days, or at least the, the new built-on wing there, but a federal building for a, 100 days straight. So to suddenly see people saying, well, we absolutely need to crack down on rioters, you know, no bail for insurgents. It, there's an element of the unbelievable to this. I mean, we just saw riots mostly on the left, 95% on the left, some right-wing infiltrators as well, that went on for a year, that killed 25 people, that did $2 billion in damage. None of this is disputed. The Lake Street Business District, which is the traditional black and Asian business district in Minneapolis, by the way, burnt, large chunks of it burnt to the ground. You don't want to exaggerate. But none of that, half of that wasn't covered. A great deal of it was minimized, if you remember, fiery, but mostly peaceful. And it's important to point that out when you see people now trying to say, <laughs> oh, you know, you conservatives, you you bros, you're the guys that riot. Not quite. Let, let's, let's look at reality. Final one, and we'll let you go. This is my right. favorite one, probably. Many famous and universally praised people right now, I'd say especially on the left side of the fence, but I'm open to both arguments, are very stupid in the literal sense of not having a high IQ. You are not imagining this. Please expound and we'll let you go. That's another controversial one. If you look at that tweet, you'll see 21 comments, probably the majority negative, but you also see a couple hundred likes. 
It, yeah, I think it's absolutely obvious that a whole range of forces, I mean, massive affirmative actions gone on for decades. Let's not forget legacy programs for dumb, rich white guys, although the majority of white guys probably would not qualify. Uh, all of this different stuff, the, the sort of new grievance studies, disciplines opening up. We've produced a large number of people that have these fantastic sounding college degrees. And just like on Twitter, I'm not going to name names and start sort of low level celebrity beefs. But you, you watch politicians in both parties talk. You hear the words coming out of their mouth that just aren't all that brilliant. And there's this entire sort of industry of massaging them where people that actually are pretty intelligent, or at least that have kind of headlining media roles, will then say, you know, well, what X meant by that was, or let's never forget how, you know, oppression might have shaped that to sound a little different from the way you perceived it and so on. There's a great deal of excuse making for this. A lot of experts just aren't that brilliant. And when you watch people talking about anything from sports gaming, by the way, um, you know, all present company, of course, accepted, but to betting in the market, this is one of my fields of expertise, actually, over to male-female relations, over to politics, certainly these academic journals like Fat Studies that people are citing as you know, hardcore science, very, very often you're not listening to someone who has a higher IQ or indeed more expertise than you do if you're just a dentist or a local merchant. And it's important to keep that in mind. When people start invoking the experts, ask experts in what? What are the experts in? Absolutely nothing. Thank you so much, Will. I really appreciate it. Would love to have you back on. One of the smartest guys on Twitter. And now I know one of the smartest guys on TV as well. Thank you so much. Don't forget to go to YouTube.com slash Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe. Hit that notifications button. When we come back, we'll get to our approval rating for Stephen A. Smith. Next. Welcome back to the show. Maybe my favorite part of the show. Uncle Jimmy, you got another Bible story. Always, always. Let it rip. Um, today, I'd like to take you to the book of Job. Gotcha. Take, take, take you to the book of Job. And, you know, the book, book of Job, uh, I, I'm just going to tell you straight out. The thing about the book of Job is, the book of Job starts, or the story of Job tells you that God and the devil were sitting up chilling. They were sitting up chomping it up. I don't know. And the devil's telling God, said, hey, man, this mankind you got going around here, said, they soft. soft. Straight up, they soft. He said, man, any of, your, any of your peoples you got out here, I can make them curse you. And, you know, God thought for a minute. God said, eh, not my God, Job. He said, Job, good people. You know, Job is my most trusting and faithful servant. Hmm. The devil told God, said, yeah, Job's your people, but Job's your people because you blessed Job. All you got to do is take that away from Job and Job will curse you too. Mm. And the guy's like, you know, all right, you know, he said, I tell you what, you do what you're going to do with Job. Now, God said, but what you can't do, you can't touch him. Okay, but do, do, do what you're going to do, but don't put your hands on him. Gotcha. And the devil's like, you know, he like, challenge accepted. He gone. Okay. So now this goes down to Job. See, I had to tell all of that because all of this happened unbeknownst to Job. Job didn't know that this conversation was going on. All Job knows is he's setting up 
and all of a sudden a storm comes through. Storm comes through and wipes out everything. The Bible said it wiped out his cattle. It wiped out his home. It wiped out most of his family except for his wife. Okay? And you know what happened? Job didn't curse God. Okay? Mm. Next thing that happened, they said Job took sick. Said he took ill. Said Job got so sick. Said he had to cut his flesh with, a, with, with, a, with glass or, 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 or with metal. He had to sharpened metal. He's that sick. Mm. Now, this man's so sick. And all of a sudden, now here come his wife. Bad enough he's sick. Now, here come his wife. Want to talk crazy. <laughs> Anything you want to tell me? <laughs> he's like, what? He's like, she, what? Look at you. What, what you done done? You been out doing something. You done went out and slept with something. And you done bought that stuff back in here. What's wrong with you? You call yourself God's number one boy. God wouldn't let nothing like this happen to you. She said, what you need to do is you need to go somewhere, curse God and die so you can take your ass to hell. That's what you need to do. Wow. And man, I never, man, I love this line in the Bible because you know what it said God, that Job told his wife? Job said, woman, thou speaketh like a foolish person. And I love that line because what that meant was, shh, shut your mouth. Now, close my door and go on about your business. He mm. said, but do me a favor. Would you pick my ear up over there and put it here on the <laughs> nightstand so I can do something with that in the morning? <laughs> and so, anyway, she closed the door. Job's like, come on, God. Man, th th this is kind of rough here, what you're doing, man. You brought me here for this? You know, really, is this what I was born? And God said, hey, hey, ease your tone, fella. Slow down for a minute. He said, where was you when I, put the, when I was putting the fish in the sea? He said, where was you when I was putting the stars in the sky? He said, where was you? Job realized right then what God was telling him. He realized what it was he had to do. And it was at that time that Job realized that he had to pray for forgiveness. See, but Job couldn't just pray for forgiveness for himself. Job had to pray for forgiveness for everybody else. See, and it was at that moment that Job asked for forgiveness for everybody else that God said to him, now you healed, get up, gone on your way. See, it was that easy. See, and it went on to say that Job ended up having more, he was blessed abundantly. He got more cattle. He got more land. He had more kids. But you see what he had to do first. He had to treat others like he needed to be treated. See, sometimes in life, we have to pray for others before we pray for ourselves in order to get the true meaning of God's blessing. Hmm. Pretty good, Uncle Jimmy. Hmm. Watch Pretty that. Pretty good. Hey, man, all by myself. Come on, man. I'm liking this. Stuff. Come on. <laughs> all right, let's get to our approval rating for Stephen A. Smith. Those of you uh, late to the program or just joining the program, first time seeing the approval rating. You grade everybody on four different scales, job performance, character, authenticity, it factor on a scale of zero to 25. We add the score up. You got your approval rating. Uh, Stephen A. Smith, job performance. I have him at a 19, Uncle Jimmy. Stephen A. Smith for his job performance. I, I get it. He, he's the top dog over there at the, over entertain, there. At, over oh, there at the entertainment sports personality network. Uh, I give him a 21. 
That's a little high. Are you comparing him to me and my work? That's why he's the top dog over there. He's a 21. Uh, he's a 21. I got him at a 19. I would be at the top of the scale. That's what, anyway, character. I think Stephen A. Smith has relatively high character. I um, really do. I, I really do. I give him an 18 in terms of character. I, I can't give it to him. He's a six. He's a six. He's a character. He, he, he needs to accept the fact that he needs to let it go, let it go. Your hairline ain't coming back no more. <laughs> let that shit go, Stephen. Come on, man. Authenticity. Do you find him authentic? That's where I grade him a little bit low. I, I don't think he's authentic. That apology today and all that whining at the top of his show, uh, not authentic. I give him a 12 in terms of authenticity. I think that that was a true apology. I think he meant that apology from the bottom of his heart because what he was saying was, don't mess with my money. <laughs> you messing with my money, man. He was serious about that. I give him uh, authenticity. I give him a 22. It factor. Uh, you know, his mouth roars. People pay attention. He's got some kind of it factor. I'll give him a 17 uh, it factor. Uh, I give him a 10. Let me ask, what the hell does Stephen A. Smith do? What does he really, what do he know? He, talks, he says something talking about basketball. How many times, when he doesn't ever pick one right? <laughs> what, what does he really know? He don't know nothing about, he don't know nothing about UFC. He knows you can tell that from money. this weekend. He, he knows how to get the money. He, uh, uh, okay. What else? All right, and I, for that reason alone, he get a 10. I got him at a grease fire, 66. Uh, I gave him a 59. He candle lit. Candle lit. Candle lit. He, he, he just want to put a little candle wax on his nipples. That's it. <laughs> you know what? We're done. Before you get us in trouble, we're done. We'll see you tomorrow.